Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. This comparison of these two units working together um, uh, shows how what an important innovation that was. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Dean Snow, and he's comparing Continental and Militia Cavalry from the Battle of Saratoga, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Dean Snow. And he'll be comparing two different cavalry sources from the Battle of Saratoga in 1777. Dean Snow gives us the chance to talk to, not a historian in the academic sense, but an archaeologist, uh, someone who examines the past, but also gets his hands on the physical remnants of the past as well. He's written a fabulous article for the Journal of the American Revolution, comparing how cavalry militia matched up with regular um, cavalry. And he also gave us a little bit of a history about the Continental Army's kind of rocky relationship uh, with cavalry. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Dean Snow. Dean Snow, thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Tell us about your background. Well, I'm an archaeologist. Uh, I grew up in rural Minnesota, and um, I went to the University of Minnesota where I studied archaeology and had one uh, course at the time in uh, revolutionary history. I went on to graduate study at University of Oregon, and then I had a series of three different academic positions over the, uh, over the years following that. I've been doing archaeology for about 60 years. What first drew your interest into this topic? There was a, a dual reason for that. Um, one is that um, I got involved with uh, preparing the Saratoga battlefield for the, 19, uh, the 1977 bicentennial celebrations by doing some much needed archaeology there. And um, I got a phone call in 1972 asking me to do it. And I uh, had uh, the summer available. So I said, sure. And, um, but I had had a long interest in uh, the Saratoga battlefield because um, I had moved to Albany to teach at the University of Albany in 1969. Uh, and uh, we bought a house in Saratoga County, which is very, was very close to uh, the battlefield. So we uh, had an investment, uh, I suppose, that way uh, from the beginning of our uh, time in, in uh, Albany. But it's also the case that I had uh, ancestors that fought in the revolution and um, uh, had that sort of personal interest as well. So these these kind of, these things converged, and uh, the, in the case of the article, uh, I wrote that as a follow-on to my uh, 
my book, my 2016 book, Saratoga, uh, uh, about the battles at Saratoga, entitled uh, 19, uh, 1777, uh, Tipping Point at Saratoga. Uh, this was a topic that I found interesting because one of my ancestors was a cavalryman, but also because uh, at the battlefield, they didn't know very much about um, the cavalry units that uh, were there and how they functioned. And I realized that there were um, uh, two different troops there under the command of one individual, uh, Major Hyde, but they were very different uh, troops. One was a troop from a regiment of Continental uh, Army soldiers, and the other was a militia troop. And there's always been a lot of discussion about the relative merits of militia and regular army. Uh, and it was something that was very hotly disputed uh, at the time of those battles back in 76 and 77. Uh, Washington had his own views on it and uh, others did too. Uh, so it seemed like a good opportunity to do a couple of things. One was to explore how these two units compared in carrying out their duties at Saratoga. And then secondly, uh, I saw an opportunity to rebuild the rosters of both units. Uh, the rosters had never been published before. And now I've been able to publish in this article uh, the rosters of the, of the two units. And this is always of interest to people whose descent or who's, who are descendants of uh, people that uh, were involved in the revolution. You call cavalry militias a, quote, bottom-up organization. Could you explain that? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting notion. Um, I, my, my degree is in anthropology, actually, as archaeology is my specialty, but um, anthropologists get themselves concerned about uh, how organizations uh, develop. And uh, so this came naturally into my thinking when I uh, looked at these two units. Um, cavalry militias, or excuse me, militias generally had uh, been around for quite a while at the time of the revolution. Uh, they had been developing during the course of the previous hundred years. And many of the colonial governments um, required uh, or at least encouraged uh, local communities to develop militia units. And this was because at the time, the colonial wars involved, especially in New England, uh, conflicts with the French in Canada. So before the French and Indian War, militias were seen as really important in uh, defending uh, the colonies uh, against intrusion, particularly from the north. And uh, we see that it was particularly well developed in um, Connecticut, but also in other colonies before um, the revolution. These were encouraged and very often the organization uh, emerged as uh, local prominent men uh, styling themselves as military leaders would go around town and recruit people, men, uh, to serve under them in militia units. And uh, so uh, in Connecticut, there were I think, something like 16 such uh, militia regiments uh, during the time of the French and Indian War. But this number grew. And by the time uh, we get down to the revolution, there are quite a few more. I think the number is uh, 22 by the time the uh, war broke out. So uh, the pieces that 
somebody like George Washington needed to assemble an army uh, to uh, surround the British in Boston were actually militia units that had pre-existed for a long time. But because they were uh, recruited by local people on their own initiatives, they were basically bottom-up organizations. They were not mandated uh, by the, uh, the colonial governments in a sort of top-down way. Uh, so it, it was a different kind of emergence than you would find if you had um, a colonial government suddenly decide they needed to have a standing army and went out and found, uh, I don't care, some number, two dozen men that they thought were good leaders and uh, could lead militia units and then appointed them and created a structure uh, at the top and then uh, filled in the spaces with uh, recruits uh, working down from the top. That's not how these things emerged. Militias were self-organized units that were basically bottom-up organizations. Why was George Washington initially reluctant to have a cavalry and what changed his mind? Um, he had, uh, his, his first experience, you know, in 1775 was uh, around Boston and in, well, 76, he was appointed commander in chief and, uh, his experience around Boston and, uh, the Bunker Hill, uh, battle and, uh, others uh, surrounding it, uh, had been based on his, uh, perception that the military units were hard to deploy uh, because they were volunteer organizations. And uh, a, a lot of times a militia regiment might be called out and whoever did the calling would discover that uh, a third of the men weren't there because it was harvest time or it was planting time or some other reason. Um, so they weren't uh, logistically dependable uh, and in the way a standing army would be. Uh, He wanted to have a standing army, and he uh, took a a set of really good militia units that happened to be involved in the fighting around Boston, and he federalized them. Uh, And um, at at that time, uh, there was a militia unit uh, from Connecticut in service uh, uh, around Boston, and um, Washington's view of it was that the Cavalry was just too uh, expensive. Horses need about 20 pounds of forage a day. And if there's a war going on and you're surrounded, uh, putting the horses out to pasture is not an option. There are also other equipment expenses, um, the, the saddles, the uh, equipment that they had to have to take care of the horses and use the horses. Um, all of these things were expensive. And uh, he just didn't think that the cavalry was worth the investment early on. But what changed his mind was uh, later in 1776, he had um, Elijah Sheldon's uh, Connecticut uh, regiment with him again, this time uh, around southern New York, um, Westchester County, in the fighting that went on there and on Long Island. And it turned out that the cavalry was really uh, very useful in, in that uh, episode uh, in the revolution. Uh, they served as, uh, for communication purposes. They uh, did a lot of reconnaissance. Um, they uh, protected generals, all of whom were mounted and needed to have cavalry protection. And uh, they were able to serve as messengers. They were very effective 
in those ways. So he changed his mind about that, and he sent Elijah Sheldon back to Connecticut at the end of that uh, uh, season's campaign and uh, told him to uh, create or uh, pull together a Continental Army cavalry unit uh, for uh, standing purposes with long-term uh, commitments by the men to serve and uh, uh, the kinds of permanence and commitment that Washington felt he needed uh, in, in his main units. He created uh, four other regiments at the same time. So he had decided to do this uh, through the colonies. And Sheldon's was the, uh, uh, the one in uh, the Hartford area of Connecticut. There was another one in Connecticut as well, um, and uh, a couple others of that sort. So, um, but he also had units uh, elsewhere. Um, excuse me, I think I said five, it was really four. Um, continental uh, units in uh, Virginia, uh, two of them, and one in Pennsylvania. So uh, the Continental Army by that time, 1776, had four good, con- uh, four good uh, standing cavalry units, dragoons. Tell us about the Connecticut Light Horse Militia. The Light Horse Militia was one of the uh, uh, militia units that were mounted cavalry units, and um, uh, they hadn't existed for very long. The government of Connecticut had initially uh, 20-odd regiments of militia within which there were always a few men that had horses and could uh, serve as cavalry. And the government decided that it made no sense to have just a few troopers on horseback in each of what were otherwise infantry regiments. So they uh, detached all of the mounted um, members of these militia units uh, into um, uh, or they detached them from their home regiments and they reformed them into cavalry militia. And um, there, there were five of those scattered around Connecticut. Um, each of them was authorized to have, uh, you know, about six troops with maybe uh, two, three dozen men in them. Uh, maybe a regiment would have uh, something on the order of 200 men eventually. But the real numbers were always smaller than that. And uh, it was a hard job to go out and recruit men to serve uh, long-term commitments and to find men that had their own horses and weapons that were suitable for fighting from horseback. So um, Elijah Sheldon uh, was one of the uh, people that was selected for this, and he was uh, uh, pretty successful. He was able to put together uh, what was then called the Second Continental Light Dragoons. Um, now, notice that there's something that happened here. Uh, when the Connecticut government formed regiments by taking mounted men out of the infantry uh, regiments, they numbered them, one through five, and uh, assigned commanding officers. When Washington created uh, four Continental light dragoon uh, or light horse regiments. He numbered those as well. Uh, And it's still the case that very often when you read about them, the second continental light dragoons of Connecticut 
are known as Sheldon's uh, Regiment. Uh, you know, things uh, of that sort of traditional sort uh, were still current then. They still tended to uh, identify and name regiments by the names of their commanding officers. But you could see where Washington was going with this. He was creating a numerical system where the officers, uh, the commanders, would come and go and the unit would not change. It would still be, in Sheldon's case, the fifth uh, militia unit. And then later he had the, uh, the second Continental Light Dragoons. But it didn't matter to Washington who was commanding it. And in fact, there was a lot of turnover. But this was another problem he perceived with uh, militia units, which was that they, they depended upon the leadership of the, whoever it was that recruited the men in these units. And if that man uh, got shot or if he um, decided he didn't want to do it anymore, these units could dissolve very quickly and easily. He wanted a continental army with units that would outlive the people that populated all the various positions within it. Why was Sheldon's 2nd Continental Light Dragoon Regiment valuable? Well, it, it, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting unit. Um, there was an overall commander uh, of the uh, four Continental uh, Light Horse or Light Dragoon regiments, um, but that guy really never had very much to do because these regiments were deployed to different parts of the army uh, and could not be overseen by a single commander. They were usually under the command of um, some other, some brigadier general who had a whole series of, uh, of regiments to worry about, most of them uh, infantry. Sheldon's is interesting because Sheldon was a real go-getter, and he was very effective at pulling together the men that he needed to serve as officers in the new regiment that he was told in December of 1776 to organize. Uh, and by March, he had everybody he needed. Um, you know, he had uh, uh, he had a major uh, to serve uh, under him, a surgeon. He had a surgeon's mate. He had um, an adjutant and so forth, a paymaster. That was important. And um, he had six, at that point, uh, captains uh, to lead the, the six troops of his regiment. And all those were in place. Uh, by well, in the, the in the case of the captains, they were all in place by the end of January seventy six in seventeen seventy seven. Um, so he was ready to go, and uh, he got orders uh, from Washington to uh, send one of the troops uh, northward to serve under the Northern Army, which was then still under the command of Philip Schuyler, uh, one of whose daughters famously married John Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton, excuse me. Um, they went north, but they were initially um, redirected when they got to the Northern Army into uh, the Schoharie Valley, which is west of uh, Albany. And they served there uh, to try to uh, suppress uh, a lot of loyalists that were living in that area uh, that um, uh, needed to be uh, uh, dealt with. Uh, from the from Washington's point of view, the troop that he sent north to serve uh, with the Northern Army was led or captained by uh, Jean Louis de Venajou, and he was a Frenchman 
who had volunteered his services, uh, uh, and several such uh, French uh, officers were present in those days, uh, Lafayette being the most famous of them, but uh, de Vernageau was uh, one of them, and he had had other things to do with uh, the leadership of the Continental Army. Uh, but there he was now in, in Schoharie, uh, and he was there to suppress these ro- loyalists. Uh, as the summer wore on, and we get towards this time of year, um, he found himself reassigned to uh, uh, a more central role in Horatio Gates's army at Saratoga. Gates replaced Philip Schuyler when Philip Schuyler was cashiered because he had lost uh, Fort Ticonderoga. Uh, They brought in Horatio Gates, and he was trying to organize uh, the army, the Northern Army, uh, around um, uh, some areas that had been chosen, uh, which are the scene of the the battlefield as we know it today. Um, uh, Kosciuszko, uh, the Polish engineer, selected and uh, laid out uh, the, selected the, the, the terrain and then laid out the fortifications and camp that uh, Gates' army uh, occupied. So de Vernageau was at Saratoga, but so was Major Hyde's um, troop from, uh, of Connecticut militia. So those are the two units that uh, were sent to Saratoga and served together there. Now there's there's kind of a wrinkle to this that I find very interesting, and that is that uh, Elijah Hyde was uh, swiftly promoted from captain to major, so that he could command this two-unit detachment. He wouldn't have been able to do it as a captain because uh, the other unit, the one led by De Verdejou. Uh, was also led, by, uh, commanded by a captain. So he had to outrank uh, de Vernageau. This, I think, was problematic later on because de Vernageau was uh, a self-important uh, Frenchman who didn't like being under the command of a guy who had uh, been only recently promoted from captain to uh, major of a militia unit. And here he was, de Verjou, the captain of the only regular army uh, uh, troop of cavalry at Saratoga, and yet he was playing second fiddle. This eventually, I think, led to his, this is what led to his um, uh, disappearance before the surrender. What did you find during this comparison? Well, my takeaway uh, was that the the problem with militia units was not in the uh, commitment of the men who showed up, uh, nor was it in uh, the uh, ability that they had to perform whatever duties were assigned to them. Uh, it was in the logistics of uh, holding the units in readiness and deploying them quickly that was the problem with militia that the regular army units did not have. These were all guys that had day jobs. Uh, And uh, it's one thing to have 
Minutemen in Massachusetts who respond to local emergencies and are in the field very, very quickly. Uh, but it's quite another to try to uh, get a militia regiment to move a couple hundred miles in order to uh, be involved in a, a major campaign. Uh, it's, it's just very, very difficult because of the nature of militia units. Um, the people under the, the men under um, uh, the uh, Jonathan or John Stark, the uh, commander of the uh, Vermont uh, militias um, at Saratoga is a good example of another problem. And that is that uh, Stark, um, who was fought bravely uh, at Bennington uh, and so did his men, all of them, uh, and basically won the battle at Bennington handily. Um, he also, uh, you know, was very, very uh, fully engaged in revolutionary activities, but Vermont was not yet a state, and the Vermonters didn't like New Yorkers. And a lot of friction occurred in the Northern Army because um, people from other states didn't like being in New York um, and uh, carrying the water for uh, the Northern Army. Uh, their attitude was that uh, their units were state units and that they would much prefer to uh, fight in their home states uh, and not be committed to uh, service in, in, a, in a bigger kind of campaign uh, someplace out of state. And that's exactly what happened in 1777. We got all these different units from New Hampshire and Massachusetts and New York and uh, Connecticut, uh, all together in the Northern Army uh, to try to stop Burgoyne uh, from marching south to uh, Albany. And Stark, uh, at the last minute, uh, took his uh, militia and left and went home to Vermont uh, and wouldn't participate. Now, um, he actually didn't have much choice because these were all short-termers. Militiamen were always short-termers, and it turned out that they had signed up to serve in the Vermont militia up to a date certain, which was just a few days short of the first battle of Saratoga. Uh, so the Vermonters were not uh, there uh, to uh, uh, participate in either of the two battles at Saratoga. They did show up uh, near the end and help surround Burgoyne, but these were men that had been re-recruited and, uh, and committed themselves to another short-term operation. So uh, Stark was able to get them uh, to the um, area around Schuyler, what's now called Schuylerville, where the surrender actually took place. How does this article help us to understand the Revolutionary Era better? Um, well, I think it, it helps helps us evaluate the, the Continental Army, um, how the regulars differed from the militia units that Washington started with at the beginning of the conflict. Um, the idea that units would be numbered rather than uh, be identified by the names of their commanding officers was uh, a major difference that uh, I, I, I don't notice that anyone has really talked about this very much. 
but I, I think that uh, this comparison of these two units working together um, uh, shows how in, what an important innovation that was. The efficiency of deployment uh, of the continental units was clearly better than the deployment of the uh, of the militias. Um, I, I didn't mention it earlier, but Elijah High's uh, troop only sent about half of its men north, and he went around and got a, another half from a different troop and a few volunteers from still other troops in the home regiment because uh, a lot of the men that he had under his direct man uh, simply couldn't go. There were other reasons uh, uh, for them to remain behind. So it sort of illustrates the difficulty of deploying a militia unit. On the other hand, militia were and are still important. The, the modern National Guard is the descendant organization of the militias uh, that uh, worked together during the Revolutionary War. Um, the militias are mentioned, by the way, six times in the Constitution. And um, this is it's, it's an especially uh, relevant uh, observation for the, in the case of the Second Amendment. Um, so uh, militias are, are, were important in the thinking of, um, of revolutionary government, and they remain important today in the form of the National Guard. Dean Snow, thanks again. Thank you. I enjoyed it. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.